0: This morning we are in Matthew chapter 16, so if you would open your Bibles over to Matthew 16. We're going to look at verses 19 to 23 this morning. But as we begin, let's start by reading, starting again in verse 13, the section we've been looking at the last number of weeks. So Matthew 16, starting at verse Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now the past few weeks we've been looking at at what for Peter would have been really a a high point of his ministry, a, a great moment for him, a moment of great encouragement. He confessed Jesus as The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus pronounced him blessed. He was in this enviable position. The Father had revealed the Son to him. And on him, Jesus would build his church. And I think it's difficult for us from the Gospels to think of a greater moment for Peter. He received a new name. He was now Peter. He was the rock. And so to see immediately after, or at least what seems like in Matthew's narrative, immediately after, to see Peter get things so wrong that he begins to resist the Lord's work and even tempt the Lord. And to see the Lord say to him, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, is surprising, really, to say the least. Peter, who had received special revelation from the Father, was now setting his mind on the things of man. And it warns us how quickly we can get sidetracked from the things of God. You know, we can, be, we can go from being a foundation stone in the building of the church to being a stumbling block in the way of that same building very quickly. We can be used of God one minute and used of Satan the next. And it's dreadful, really, if you think about it. It's it's really dreadful. Peter doesn't lose his salvation here. He doesn't destroy the promise of verse 18. Jesus will still build his church on Peter. Peter's sin isn't greater than the gates of Hades. But it does need to be dealt with. It, It does need to be repented of. He needs to get his mind back on the things of God... And really what he needs to do is learn some lessons in the school of Christ. Peter's mistake here is going to provide an opportunity for us to learn from the Lord and an opportunity for us to examine ourselves as well. I called this sermon, Lessons from the Builder of the Church, and we're going to draw three lessons from this text, three lessons from the builder of the church, and and these lessons are going to help us to be useful in the Lord's hands in the building of his church. And so these are lessons for us to learn that are going to equip us and enable us to be useful in in the Lord's work in the world. And so three lessons from the builders builder of the church. We're going to see, first of all, the, the keys of the kingdom. We're going to look at that, verse 19. Then secondly, we're going to look at the ministry of the Messiah in verses 20, to twenty-one, Jesus is going to teach us what the what the Christ is really going to do, and then third, we're going to look at the stumbling block of Satan in verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Now, these lessons were originally from the Lord Jesus to Peter, and as well including the other disciples, but they're also for us. These are from the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, "I will build my church," and these are lessons. That we need to learn if we would be useful to the Lord so that he would build his church through us. Now remember last week we said that this church is a gathering of redeemed people, saved people, born again people. And these people gather and this church, this, this people is built by the Lord through these people. And so the church is built through the church. And so the Lord works in us, in our salvation, to make us like himself, and then he works by us to bring others to himself, and he shows himself through us to one another so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so let's sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and learn from him these three lessons. First of all, let's talk about these keys of the kingdom, number one in your outline, the keys of the kingdom, From verse 19 remember we weren't able to cover verse 19 last week and uh, Jesus had another promise for Peter there not only would he build his church on him but he would give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven look again verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and so Peter is going to have the keys. And once again, we need to wrestle with what this means. And we could maybe show the difficulty of this just by, maybe by asking some questions here, when will Jesus give these keys to Peter? Or when did he give these keys to Peter? What's the connection between the church in verse 18 and the keys in verse 19? What does Jesus mean here by the kingdom of heaven? Do these keys relate to the present aspect of the kingdom, or is this a future thing? Does Peter have these keys now, or did, did he have them in the book of Acts, or could he still be waiting even today for these keys, and it's something that applies to the future kingdom? We could ask, what does it mean to bind whatever on earth, or what does it mean to loose something on earth? And what comes under this category of whatever, whatever we bind or loose? It, it's literally whatever, or or it, is it literally whatever, or is it something specific that the Lord Jesus has in mind when He says whatever you bind and loose? And how would Peter, or how would anyone else, for that matter, go about binding or loosing whatever, whatever that is? And so these are difficult questions, and I, I don't exactly know how to answer them with certainty for you this morning. I I, I don't know how to answer And and maybe part of the best answer is just to say that this is whatever. And it's just a a broad thing. And and it applies to whatever we need to bind or loose. But regardless, I would just say at the beginning here, I am not super dogmatic on this, although I, I have some suggestions here. One of my commentators uh, this week said that another kind of fuller commentator that I don't have had summarized these into 15 different views of what these keys are. And we're not going to look at all of those today. But if we start to think about this, what what we're looking at here, keys were used then much like they're used today. What was most often locked was doors, doors to the storage places And the steward of the house, the, the, the manager of the house would have keys and he, and he kept these keys and he, and he used them to open and close the storage supply so that he could fulfill the, the needs of the household. And so keys were used sometimes to, to lock or unlock doors. Um, especially the storage doors, but even other times other doors, the entry door, the, to let people in and out of certain kinds of doors. And whatever they were, keys represent authority. The one who had the keys had the authority to access or to prevent access to the thing that they had the keys for. And so the one with the keys, the steward of the house, had the right to open or to close, Now, the word for keys is used six times in the New Testament, and I don't know if you want to turn to these or if you just want to kind of listen to them, but Luke 11 and verse 52, we see the keys of knowledge. And so Jesus said there, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And so the keys of knowledge allow people to enter or keep people from entering the knowledge. And in this case, it would be the knowledge of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus is the living one in that context. He overcame death by his resurrection. And in verse 18, he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so the keys of death and Hades allowed him to exit Death, he, he opened the door. If you could kind of picture this metaphor, he opened the door and he left death in Hades and was resurrected from the dead. In Revelation chapter three, verses seven and eight, Jesus has the key of David. And the key of David is likely the closest to, uh, of any of these keys to the keys of the kingdom. Remember, David was kind of the picturesque king of the kingdom. And the Messiah was going to be the son of David who would sit on David's throne. But listen to Revelation 3 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking and he says, The words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so here, this open door that's connected to the key of David, this open door seems to be an open door for ministry to the church there. And Paul uses this kind of open door picture similarly in a, in a few places. First Corinthians 6, 9, he says, For a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so we get this picture in both of these texts of, of an open door, the Lord opens the door, and in the midst of opposition, there's this opportunity for ministry, and nobody's able to close this. Well, Paul uses that a few other times uh, to talk about this open door, but we won't look at those. The other two times that we see this key used in the New Testament is, I think there was one or so in a parable, um, and there's a couple... Later in Revelation that talk about a key to the bottomless pit. And so keys, just like they do in the, in our day, they, they did in the ancient Near East. They were used to open and close doors so that people can enter or leave. And our passage has keys to the kingdom. And it seems closely related then to keys to an open door for effective ministry. And so it's not surprising that one of the primary interpretations is that somehow Peter has keys to allow people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to enter the kingdom, as we've often spoken about, is to be saved. We become citizens of the kingdom by repentance and faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, and we enter the kingdom and then we await that glorious day when the kingdom will come. And so we enter the kingdom in our salvation. But the Catholic Church takes this interpretation so far that they say that the Pope, member Peter's successor, has the keys of the kingdom such that he can absolve anyone's sins at will. Or he can get people out of purgatory. That's what the Catholic Church uses. They say Peter is the, the Pope, and all su- subsequent popes are the rock on which the church is built. And then they have these keys, and they can just at will kind of say, you are, are, are your sins are forgiven, and you can enter heaven, and you cannot. Now, of course, there is no purgatory, and this passage teaches no such thing. Peter does not open the door of heaven simply by granting people access. And so let's think about how did he do this. Let's let's go back to the book of Acts. And I think that's really helpful here. We did that when we, we looked at him being the rock and we went back to the book of Acts and we kind of looked at how did Peter function as a foundation stone for the church. And I think we do well to do the same thing here this morning. We need to keep in mind that whatever this is that Christ gives Peter, we see Peter doing it in the book of Acts, unless we relegate this entirely to the future and Peter is still awaiting the fulfillment of this. But otherwise, these keys and how they function should be seen in the book of Acts. And again, that's what we saw last week with, with Peter being the rock. We went to the historical fulfillment in Acts and we understood what Jesus meant by Peter being the rock, And so when Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys, right after he said, I will, on this rock, I will build my church, at least for me, I think it's difficult to think that Jesus is totally changing from the near future, I will build my church, to the, the very distant future, so that we see the keys of the kingdom being something entirely future. And so it seems to me anyways that that binding and loosing also on earth is something very much connected to this building of the church. And so if we understand the keys to be the keys that open the doors of entrance to the kingdom of heaven, then that would be something that happens now during the present age. And so let's ask then, well, how did Peter open the doors to the kingdom of heaven? How did Peter do that? Well, it wasn't by sitting on a throne and deciding who would have access or who would be denied access to heaven. We never see Peter doing that in the book of Acts. So how did Peter open the doors of entrance to the kingdom? And the answer is simply by preaching the gospel. He preached Jesus as the way to the Father. He said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he called all people who would to repent and believe. He offered them the forgiveness of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And if he hadn't, if we think about it, if Peter hadn't preached this good news, the door to salvation would have remained closed because he had the keys in that sense. And he could show people the true and the only way of salvation and and really on this point all of the apostles were equal with Peter in that. All of the apostles were to preach the gospel and, and by the gospel see that the door to the kingdom of heaven was open for all who would repent and believe. And in that sense, we also are called to the same. We also have the keys in that sense. We are to preach the gospel and invite people to believe on Jesus Christ. And that's one interpretation of the keys, and, and really that's only part of it so far. But I think this is, is probably the main idea here. Peter has the keys of entrance to the kingdom by proclaiming the way of entrance to the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't just say that you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He also talks about this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. To bind is to restrain a person or a thing with various kinds of restraints. And and to loose is really just the opposite. It's to untie or to release the person or thing from those restraints. And so we've talked about this idea of opening. we, We know how Peter probably opened the door to the kingdom, but let's talk about this other side of this thing. Let's talk about closing or about binding, if we want to put it that way. And to do that, I, I want you to turn to a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew eighteen eighteen 18 is, is the verse we're really going to get to here that's, that's parallel. Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And Matthew 18 is also the other place in Matthew that uses the word church. Now, the first time that Jesus speaks about the church, he says he will build his church. That's our passage. And the next time he talks about the church, he tells us how to deal with sinning and straying members of the church. And the whole of Matthew chapter 18 is about believing and keeping from sin and forgiving our brothers and sisters who sin against us. We are to be a community. We're to be a a gathering of people who take sin seriously. Even to the extent, if you look at verse 8, this is how serious we take sin. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the, the hell of fire. And when somebody in our midst, in our, in our community, goes astray or goes into sin, they are like lost sheep. And so if you look at verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them is gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should Perish. And so how do we respond when one of these little ones, one of the the believers that's part of our gathering, how do we respond? Well, how do we respond when someone is caught in a sin? Do we say, good riddance, sinner, I'm glad you're on your way out? Do we say, woe to you? Or do we just say, well, I guess they want to go astray. I, I, I guess they want to sin and they don't want to talk about it. Let's just Let's just leave them to their own ways. No, not at all. That, that is not what we do. If the Lord cares about the one, then we care about the one. And our aim is to restore them. It's to bring them back. It's to get them to recognize their sin and to turn from it. And so we're to be this people that on the one hand, we don't ignore sin. And yet on the other hand, we don't condemn the sinner. We're not, we're, we're not kind of angry with them. We're, we're trying to help them. And so there's really really two extremes here that we're to av- avoid. One says, you know, sin is no big deal. Don't worry about cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. It's no big deal. We all do it. We're all sinners. No problem. Just keep on doing what you're doing and try, if you if you don't mind, try a little bit harder not to do it. Well, that's the one extreme. We're not to do that. The other side is legalistic and self-righteous. The other extreme moves quickly to condemn a person and to separate from a person in sin, but without really this heart to win such a one and restore such a one back to fellowship. Now, this side won't ignore the sin, but they don't have a heart of compassion, and they almost chase the one away rather than pursue them and try to bring them back. But the right response when a a member of our community goes astray, the right response is in Matthew 18 and verse 15. And this is kind of bringing us to this verse 18 that's parallel to our passage. And so look at verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." Well, I've, I've taught on this before, and so I'm, I'm not really gonna say much more here beyond just reading it there. But we see the, the four steps of trying to win, trying to restore. Again, in the words of verse 15, trying to gain your brother. There's four steps, and, and the first one when somebody goes astray or somebody goes into sin is to have a private discussion with the sinning or straying person. First step is to have a, a private discussion, but if they, if they won't listen, if they won't listen, step two is a, a, a private discussion with one or two others coming along, and, and they're coming along to either confirm or deny the situation. Is there a sin or is there not a sin? And if they won't listen again, then the whole church is to go to their brother or their sister and call them to repentance. And again, the goal is is not simply to shame the person, not at all to shame the person, but to win them, to gain them from verse 15. And, and that's step three, tell it to the church. And the whole church goes and, and tries to, to find the one sheep that has gone astray. And then again, if they won't listen even to the whole church, step four is let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the idea is that this person is in sin and they won't repent, And so now we think of them as a lost person. They're acting like a lost person by continuing in their sin, and so we treat them according to their actions. And if they insist on calling themselves Christians, but they won't heed God's word or they won't heed the church's admonition, then other scriptures say that we should not even eat with such a one. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Verses 11 to 13 says but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And, and the idea there is that we're to make a judgment and put this person out of the church who continues in their sin. Now the reason that we came to Matthew 18 is because, again, verse 18 is very similar to Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus says here in verse 18, Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven in heaven. And here, the context of binding clearly refers to binding them to their sin. You see, such a one is put out of the church there, and if they're truly saved, they will repent one day, but until then, they are bound and they are outside of the church. Now, without getting overly technical about the grammar of both of these passages, Uh, What I want to say here is that both of these passages are best translated so that what is done on earth by Peter or what is done on earth by the church in church discipline has already been done in heaven. And so we could say this, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven or whatever you loose on earth shall have been or will have been previously loosed in heaven. In other words, what's going on here is that there's a promise here to Peter and to faithful churches who who practice church discipline. There's a promise of divine guidance in church discipline. And Jesus puts it again like this. And if you look at verse 19 of Matthew 18, verse 19, the very next verse, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so again, who are these two or three? Well, it's it's if we just follow the context, it's the two or three witnesses that have have gathered together to confront this person about their sin. And so when it's, when Jesus says, "If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask," it's not talking about prayer here. It's it's something that they ask a sinning member. Maybe to do or to repent or, or whatever they're doing there in the, in the case of the church discipline. And what's happening is that there's an agreement between what's going on on earth and what's going on in heaven. And so that what's happened in heaven becomes a reality on earth through the church. And this is something that, that we need to weigh carefully. You know, if you are ever, God forbid, if you're ever involved in being disciplined or in being confronted by uh, another brother in, you know, if you, because you're in sin, Jesus promises to be among us in this if we would do it according to His word, and He promises that if we bind someone in in that step four sense of church discipline, putting them out of the church, that we can hope that we on earth are being guided to conclusions that are already settled in heaven. So that what we bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Now when we say that, we can't go so far as to say that any church that practices church discipline is always going to do so in perfect harmony with heaven. But at the very least, we should be very careful and very thoughtful if we ever are going to reject the counsel of our brothers and sisters who pursue us in this way, it could be that we are even rejecting Jesus Christ and the verdict of heaven. And so there's a a great weightiness here, and there's a great promise to Peter and to the church here when we talk about binding and loosing and, and opening and closing the doors to the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to be very careful in such a situation. And conversely, we need to be very careful as a church, if we ever have to do this, that we're, that we're being guided by the principles of God's word so that what is happening in heaven is also being echoed on earth in the reality in our church. But let's go back now. Let's go back to our text. Go to Matthew 16. Verse 19, the keys open the doors of the kingdom by the gospel message and they close the door, we could say, by church discipline. Again, verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this is a promise to Peter that heaven, the Father, will guide him on earth. And Peter is going to be used on earth so that the things bound and loosed in heaven will be carried out by him on earth. And I think we're just going to kind of leave it there for that. You know, again, there's more that could be said here. There's there's other um, aspects of the interpretation of this that maybe come into this whole thing. But, but I think it's good enough for us for today just to leave it right there. And all I want to add now at this point is that if this is the correct interpretation, and I, and I believe it is, then we also have these keys. The authority of heaven is with us. In the Word of God we don't have any authority outside of the Word of God, but the authority of of heaven is with us in the Word of God, and by heeding the Word and the truths the, the truths of heaven are being applied on earth, so that the reality of people's spiritual state in heaven is is being demonstrated on earth as people respond to the gospel or are put out of the church in church discipline. And so we are used on earth by heaven, by the living Lord Jesus Christ, again, to build his church. And he promises to be with us and to accomplish his heavenly purposes through us on earth. And, and that should be a great encouragement to us. And so lesson one here in the schoolroom of Christ, lesson one was the keys of the kingdom, how they work, how they function. Now let's look number two. Let's look at the ministry of the Messiah in verses 20 and 21. And it's interesting right away here that that Jesus doesn't want his disciples to tell people that he is the Christ. The very truth that he said Peter was blessed for recognizing that the Father had revealed the truth that he is the Christ, he doesn't want that to be known because it would seem that the crowds weren't ready for it. And so in verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was The Christ. Now, after the resurrection, of course, the disciples boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. But at this point, at this time in the Lord's ministry, the crowds weren't ready for that kind of public proclamation. The the plan, according to verse 21, is that Jesus is first going to have to die and then be resurrected. And what we're going to see is that the, the, the nation is, is very much in the same place that Peter is in. And we're going to see that in a minute. We're going to see that Peter doesn't quite understand the mission of the Messiah. Peter doesn't understand that the, the Messiah is going to suffer. And Israel was also kind of on the same page with Peter. You see, they wanted and they expected a conquering Messiah to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted an earthly Messiah rather than a spiritual Savior who called them to repent and be forgiven. But the Scriptures teach that the Messiah had to suffer and had to pay the penalty for sin. The Scriptures actually teach both things, that the Messiah would suffer for sins and that the Messiah would conquer and reign. And how those two things fit together wasn't exactly clear until after Jesus died and rose again and spoke about His triumphant second coming. But Jesus the Christ came the first time to suffer, and perhaps if his disciples had openly proclaimed him as the Christ, it would have interrupted that plan. And so he strictly charged them, a strong word, a strict charge, an order, a a very certain command, tell no one that that he was the Christ. Now verse 21 starts a, a new section, but closely related From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So they have rightly confessed him as Christ And now he's going to begin to teach them what it really means for him to be the Christ. And it means that he must do certain things. Notice that word in the text, he must do certain things. A very important word there. That word means that something is necessary, that something must happen. And so Jesus began to show what must happen. And and all of verse 21 really fits under that must there. He must go to Jerusalem. He must Suffer much. He must suffer many things. He must suffer many things from this particular group—the elders and chief priests and scribes. And the single article there, the the word "the" in front of these three words—the chief priests, the elders, the scribes—the the one article shows that this is a single group made up of elders, chief priests, and scribes. And what we call this group typically is the Sanhedrin. Pharisees would have kind of been part of the, the elders and the scribes in that verses, and so the Pharisees are in there as well. But the Sanhedrin was this ruling body in Jerusalem. And Jesus also, according to this text, must be killed. He must be put to death, and he must be raised from the dead. And all of these are necessary because it was God's plan, and they're necessary because they were laid down in the Scripture, and to kind of see the necessity of this, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Verses 1 to 4. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand... And so what we see there is that that the the death, burial, and and resurrection of Christ was in accordance with the scriptures, and that's why it was necessary for Jesus to die. That's one reason. If you go over to Luke chapter 24, let's look at a few verses over there. Look at Luke 24 and verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, same word there, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And if you jump down to verse 44, then he said to them again, this time to the the 11, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now the reason that the scriptures spoke about these things is because it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And to kind of see that, we could go to Acts chapter 2. And verse 22 where Peter is preaching and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up. And here's the key here, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so God planned that Jesus would be killed and crucified and resurrected the third day. And he wrote it in the scriptures. And as Jesus said in another place, John ten thirty five, scripture cannot be broken. And so we see the, this kind of dual necessity, it was part of God's plan, it was something that was written in Scripture, and the, and the reason that, that these things were necessary and part of God's plan is because, the, the reason it was in Scripture is because there's a deeper reason that it was necessary for Christ to do these things. It was necessary in order for Him to fulfill His mission of saving His people from their sins. And so Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says that he had to, and that's a different word here, but it's the same idea that, that this must happen. This is a, a necessary thing that ought to happen. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, And so the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus had to become man, he had to die, this plan had to be fulfilled, it was written in scripture, but it was all necessary in order that we could be saved. Because a holy God had to punish sins. And a just God had to punish man since man had sinned. And a wise God came up with a plan to save men by sending his son to take himself a human nature. And a loving God punished his own son in our place so that he could save unworthy sinners like you and I. And a powerful God poured his wrath on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he, when he poured on him the wrath for the penalty for our sin. And when that sin was paid, this powerful God rose the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And now a merciful God offers peace to all who will repent and believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And a gracious God chose some people before the foundation of the world. And he will ensure that by grace, they will come to Christ and be saved. And so in our text, Jesus is for the first time, and at least for the first time, clearly he is showing his disciples that what must be, that he must be killed In Jerusalem, so that he could save his people from their sins. And this is really the Messiah's ministry. This is the Messiah's ministry, and we need to know the Lord. We need to know his plan of salvation. But Peter hadn't learned this lesson yet. Peter hadn't learned these things yet. And even though he had just acknowledged who Jesus was, he seems to think, at least in this moment, he seems to think that he has a better plan. Then the one that Jesus began to show him. And here we see number three, the stumbling block of Satan. The stumbling block of Satan. Now, when we see this, we're surprised, I think. But we need to realize that, that every time we complain about anything, we are acting exactly like Peter in verse 22. Every time we make excuses for our sin, we are acting exactly like Peter here. You know, when we think we know better than God and Christ. Now, Peter is ignorant here, and he, he's ignorant about the Messiah's ministry, and, and actually he's unteachable here. Jesus told him just, just now what must happen, but he wouldn't have it. He, he has a better idea than what Jesus says must happen and, and he's really just set in his ways at this moment. He's set in his ways and he has an idea of how the Messiah should operate and when Jesus says that it's going to be different than that, Peter thinks, "No. No way, Lord. No no way." And he's he's respectful and and caring, but he's ignorant and he's arrogant and he knows better and so he takes an opportunity to rebuke the messiah and if you just think about that he is rebuking god in human flesh and he knows better and so he's going to rebuke the son of god the one of whom god had said this is Deuteronomy 18:15 the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me moses is speaking here and so the lord is going to raise up a prophet like moses from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen. And again in verse 18 and 19, Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so this is what Peter should have known about the Messiah, but look at what he does in verse 22. And he took him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord! This shall this shall never happen to you." And so Peter is going to do Matthew eighteen fifteen on Jesus, even before Jesus has ever taught about Matthew eighteen fifteen. He just knows instinctively, instinctively, this is what I do. And so Peter's going to take him aside and he's going to have a private discussion. He's going to rebuke God in human flesh. And he's going to rebuke him. Think about this. He's going to rebuke him in regard to God's wisest, most gracious plan of salvation. Do you see, see what's happening here? The text says he began to rebuke him. He didn't get very far. And rebuke is a very strong word. We saw that word in Matthew eight twenty six when Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea in the midst of a great storm and then the 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 sea went calm and so you could imagine it, it being a very strong rebuke in the in the midst of that weather. Matthew uses this word in chapter seventeen. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. That's Matthew seventeen eighteen. And Peter's words are, are similarly strong. Not only is this word for rebuke strong, but Peter's words are strong. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's literally uh, gracious to you or merciful to you. And, and the idea is that Peter wants God to spare Jesus this suffering and death. He wants a, a more gracious plan for his Lord. He wants a more merciful plan for the Lord, but he doesn't really realize what he's asking for at this moment. And it seems like when Jesus told him about this death and resurrection, he absolutely forgot about the part about the resurrection. It's like he just couldn't even hear that. And he says again, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And this shall never happen to you. This this uh, saying there, this shall never happen to you, that's the strongest way to make a negative in Greek. Peter basically says, never, never, Lord, never in the future shall this thing be. And, and it's like he's saying almost to the Lord, stop thinking so negatively, Lord. Stop Stop thinking so negatively that you're going to have to suffer and that it's going to go bad. Now, if there's at least something that we need to take away here, a minimum takeaway, maybe it would be this. Never rebuke God for his all-wise plan from before the foundation of the world to redeem sinners by the death of his son. And that's exactly what Peter did. And Jesus is having none of it. Like, just, just look at the way that he handles this. He is having none of this. And his reply to Peter is shockingly strong. Even even when we understand it in the context of what Peter is rebuking the Lord for, even then, this is shockingly strong. Now, Peter probably wasn't aware of it, but in that moment, he was being used by Satan. And Satan can influence a believer and use that believer to tempt others to sin. And Satan's got Peter here thinking earthly thoughts. That suffering is bad, that, that our road should be easy, that that he, Peter, knows best and has a better idea than the Lord, and, 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 and Satan is, is the one who kind of influences us into that kind of thinking. We're going to look at next week, we're going to look at the next verses where Jesus says really all of us need to take up our cross and give up this world and follow him. But at this time, Peter hasn't learned the lesson, and so he is gonna rebuke the Lord and tempt the Lord, and he's gonna do the devil's work. And to kind of put this into its context as, as the Lord rebukes Peter for this, I want you to just kind of turn over to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And his temptations are all along the lines of, of take the easy way. Don't suffer. Prove that, that you're the Son of God by some great miracle rather than by the way of the Father's plan of trial and difficulty. And the final temptation is in verse 8 of chapter 4 where it says there again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And notice there, Jesus says in verse 10, be gone, Satan, and be gone is the same as what he says to Peter. Literally, it's just go. And what he says to Peter is go behind me. And that's why we translate it, get behind me, Satan. But it's literally the exact same thing that he told Satan in chapter 10. Be gone, Satan. And so Jesus, if we go back to Matthew 16, Jesus turns. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now Jesus turned. And some commentators thought that he turned towards Peter as though Jesus was somehow facing away from Peter or Peter was talking to him from behind which kind of reminds me of like some kind of weird movie scene or some kind of TV show scene or something where they kind of got the the two people facing forward I'm not sure I think it fits better to to think that Jesus turned away from Peter and and then and, and so the rebuke then as he as he says get behind me Satan and and turning now Jesus is kind of facing the other way, away from the direction that, that Peter was, and I think that makes more sense. But again, this is one of those things that I'm not dogmatic on either. And then this turning then would kind of give this visual picture, get behind me, get out of my road, I am going straight ahead according to the Father's plan. And the reason that Jesus gives is that, that Peter, who he just called Rock, has become a hindrance to him. And a hindrance is a word that we've seen before. It's in Greek, a scandalon, And it's a a word that means a trap. It means a stumbling block. And if you think about it, if Peter had succeeded here, in his rebuke, he would have taken Jesus off the path that his father had set for him, off of the path of our salvation. And so the rock on which Jesus would build his church had become a stumbling block in the way of that same building. And this just shows us again how quickly we can go from serving the Lord to serving the devil. All it takes is a little bit of human thinking. Peter had his mind set on the things of man, human thinking. And it's a scary thing to think that we can be used by the prince of darkness, not possessed by the prince of darkness like Judas or like the demoniacs that we see in the gospel where Jesus casts demons out of them. But we can be influenced by the devil and by our human thinking and, and preconceived ideas of what things should be. And then we can influence others in the ways of Satan and the devil and, and sometimes not even really being aware of it. And it's, it's a scary thing for us to think about Now, the answer to this kind of a situation is, I guess we could say it's right there in Jesus's rebuke, get behind me, Satan, I'm going God's way. But I think an easier one for us to stomach would be 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so I want you to go and look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is how Paul tells Timothy to deal with such things. 2nd Timothy 2, starting in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And notice that little word there in verse twenty five, correcting his opponents. And that's exactly what Peter had become to the Lord. He had become an opponent. And that's what Satan means. It, Satan is literally the adversary. And so Peter had set himself up as an adversary of the Lord, an adversary of God's will and God's plan, and he needed to be rebuked. And the Lord, the Lord didn't mess around. Notice that the Lord didn't mess around. And now it must have been gentle. Doesn't sound very gentle, but it must have been gentle because the Lord Jesus never sinned. And so this was, was no sin. But when you think about it, I, I wonder how Peter took it. How would you take it? How would you take a, a rebuke like this? Well, think about it. Peter didn't leave. He didn't say, can you believe this guy? Can you believe this guy? I thought he was the Messiah. He called me Satan. What a jerk, you know, but that's not what Peter did. Peter must have accepted the rebuke. He must have realized that, that he was acting like an adversary, And so Peter was wise and Peter received the correction that the Lord kindly gave him as hard as it was. And people who love us, people who love us, they correct us when we're wrong. They correct us when we sin. They correct us when we go astray. And if we love God, we need to receive that kind of correction, don't we? We need, we are not perfect. We are far from it. We have a lot of places to grow and to become more like Christ. And in order to get there, we need to be corrected from false ways and told the right way of God's path. And so if we love God, we need to receive that correction and repent and grow to be like Christ. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It wouldn't have been easy for Peter. It's not easy for you or I, but it's better than going headlong into sin. And this works the other way too. If we love others, then we need to love them enough to challenge them when they go astray. We need to love them enough to challenge them when they go into sin. The Lord's servant must be one who corrects his or her opponent's. Just like our Lord does here, or just like Paul tells us, with gentleness, enduring the evil, but with this hope that these people will come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil and stop doing the devil's will. And so we need to be like our Lord, although I doubt it that we should ever be so bold as to call somebody Satan. Still, we should always be aware that Satan is at work. Sometimes even Satan is at work through great servants of the Lord like Peter. Sometimes, God forbid, Satan might even be at work through us as we get caught in human thinking and satanic thinking and things like bitterness and envy and jealousy and the works of the flesh. And we need to be delivered out of those things. But we should always be aware that Satan is at work. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to be watching, knowing that he's always looking for someone to devour. And the way to protect ourselves and the way to protect those we love is to always be setting our minds on God's ways always setting our mind on God, always obeying his word, always being willing to receive correction from the Lord and from his servants. And so we've seen three lessons today, three lessons that, that are going to help us to be part of building the church, three lessons from the builder of the church himself. And these lessons, again, will make us useful to the builder of the church to be part of his eternal program. And I think we could summarize them maybe like this. Know the gospel. We need to know the gospel. We need to be transformed by that same gospel. And then we need to help others to know and be transformed by the gospel. And if we do that, we will see God glorified in his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel that we have. We pray that we would know it, that we'd be able to explain it, that we would be useful in your hands to not only proclaim it and see people saved, but also by that same gospel that we would be useful in your hands to help people to grow to be like Christ, that they would be transformed by this gospel. And so we pray that you would, would help us to Learn and apply these lessons to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.